Morning, Wasatch Christian Church. This is Pastor John coming to you live from my home. So, like the rest of the world right now, we're trying something new. We are trying to get into the modern age as far as uh, sharing our messages and our sermons um, online. So you notice that this morning our sermon message is online on our new website. Thanks to Richard. Uh, really appreciate it. Kino's taking good care of the facility. And uh, even with earthquakes and coronavirus, all is still going well. So this morning, we are going to share church live from our new website. And with that said, uh, it is Communion Sunday. So if you'd like to pause this for just a moment and go and get some bread and some juice, don't worry about the elements that you get. There's just symbols. The important thing is about the intent of the heart as we do this. But if you'd like to pause this, go grab something for communion. We'll all share in communion together. And also, you may want to grab your Bible and a pen or pencil to take some notes as God speaks to you today. So... I'll wait for you right here as you hit the pause button, and when you come back, I'll be right here waiting. All right, so as we come to communion this morning, on this meal of remembrance, we go back to the events that Jesus calls us to remember at this time. And if you'd like to follow along with me, I'll be in John chapter 20 as we read the post-Easter story as we've celebrated this last week, the week after Easter. And uh, we'll read this together in John chapter 20, verses 1 to 29. I'll be reading out of the New American Standard Version. And it reads this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, while it was still dark, and saw a stone already taken away from the tomb. She, so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples who, who Jesus loved, and she said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciples went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciples ran ahead faster than Peter, and they first came to the tomb. And stooping down and looking in, he saw a linen wrapping lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying on the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come first to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and he believed. That's important. He saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stood and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels sitting in white, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Mary, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and tell them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene came and announcing to the disciples, she said, I have seen the Lord. And he had said these things to her. So when it was evening on that first day, the first day of the week, and the doors were shut, and the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. 
And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. What a cool thing. They rejoiced. And so Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, their sins have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and the imprints of the nails, and put my finger in the place of the nails, and put my hand on his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in the midst, and he said to them, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger, and see my hands, and reach here your hand, and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you believed? Blessed are those who did not see me and yet believe. Stop there. This is why we celebrate this meal is because Jesus is alive. He is not dead. He is not still in the grave. He is risen from the grave just as his word said. What a glad day. And I love what the disciples do when they finally realize that it's Jesus. They rejoice. We see the picture of Mary clinging on to Jesus and him just kind of laughing and saying, Mary, it's okay. You need to stop clinging on me so much. But I can just see her wrapping her arms and weeping and crying and holding him like the return of a lost loved one, which he was. And so this is what we remember today in this communion meal as we share this together. But before we do so, let us remember the words of 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 29, because they give us a warning about how we should take this meal as a family of God. It states this, starting with 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing so, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. And that is judging himself. So before we take communion, you may hit the pause button if you'd like to, but I'd like to ask you to take a moment and just reflect upon your own life. Maybe spend a little, a few moments in prayer, uh, forgiving all those who have offended you over the years or who you think have done wrong. Forgiving God because he has not done you any wrong. He's only done you good and been watching over you and protecting you. Forgiving yourself for things that you have done. Also, we would ask you to be seeking the Lord and placing God number one in your life once again. That there is nothing more important in your life right now than your relationship with Jesus. And that means that that is a growing, thriving relationship that you're investing in on a daily basis. So hit the pause button and take this time to reflect upon Jesus your relationship with him, to put him back in that rightful place in your life, and then turn the pause button back on and we'll share in communion. All right, we read in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26, where Paul states, For I received from the Lord that which he also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat the bread together, remembering that by it's Christ's body and by his stripes we are healed.
Verse 25 goes on to say, that in the same way, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and as often as you drink it, remember me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us drink together. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this post-Easter Sunday that... Uh, you have risen from the grave, that you have kept your word and your promises. We thank you for the day. We thank you for the, not the challenges, but the opportunities that you give us to face life. The the creative ways of doing things that we have not done before. Lord, that uh, although we are meeting on uh, a web link, uh, we are still bound together by your Holy Spirit as one church. We are still in fellowship and we still praise you and thank you. We give you all worship and all glory in Jesus name. Amen. All right. One thing you may want to do in time also is uh, you could hit the pause button again if you'd like to. Get on YouTube, look up some of your favorite worship songs if you don't have someone there to uh, play some music for you. Or uh, just go ahead and sing a cappella. That's a great thing. God loves the, the praise of his people. Uh, but maybe pick a couple YouTube uh, songs, your favorite Christian songs, and sing along with them, maybe before the message or after the message. Uh, as the word of God says, God inhabits the praise of his people, and we are to rejoice always. So make sure you take some time this morning to praise the Lord. And now on to our message. It will be in John chapter 20 again. So as you turn there with me, we're looking at the post-resurrection events of the living Jesus. You see, in Jesus, the story is never over. When things seem to go bad, it's often they are the dawning of a new hope in Christ. As we heard in last week's message, never put a period where God puts a comma. In other words, with God, there is not a period. There is not an end. There will be an end one day to tears and suffering, but as far as this world goes, no, no matter what is thrown at us, our circumstance does not define us. No matter what we go through, it's only meant to glorify God, and so it's not an end point in life. It's not a bad thing. It's all about perspective, actually. When we think about it, we hear the statement, Jesus is dead, and most of the world, even the disciples at the time, said, Jesus is dead, period. End of story. All over, we need to pick up and do something else. We need to go fishing. We need to go back to our homes, but period. But again, in Jesus, there's a comma. That Jesus, when he was dead, was not the end. It was just the beginning. You see, Jesus had to die in our for, our, for us to die in our place to save us and redeem us and renew us back to God. So for Jesus, death was not a period. Death was a comma. And in our lives, those things that happen to us are not periods either. They are commas because we are Christians and made in the image of Christ. Remember the story a few years ago of the avid Utah hiker? In 2003, Aaron Ralston was hiking alone in Blue John Canyon area of southern Utah. He fell and he found his arm wedged under a boulder and he could not move it. He struggled there, stuck for five days. Um, drinking his own urine to try and stay hydrated, trying to stay warm at night, doing anything he could. And finally, after five days, he made the decision to take his dull pocket knife and cut his own arm off, wrap it with a tourniquet, and walk his way out to safety. Now, most people would look at this and say, that's a period in life. Some people would sit back and say, I've been out stranded for five days. I've lost my arm. This is the end of life. I'm useless. I can't do anything. Life is over. What I say to that is, what a ridiculous thing to say. Life is not over. 
For Aaron, because of his perspective, this mishap was not a period in his life. It was a comma. In fact, what happened to Aaron after this was pretty phenomenal. Because he had the right perspective that having to cut his own arm off to save himself was not the end of things, but only a new beginning, a new challenge in how to do things, a new challenge in how to live and go on, his life radically changed. You see, Aaron owned the fact that it was he himself that put himself in that position to be hiking alone and be stranded. He didn't blame anybody else. He didn't blame the boulder. He didn't blame God. He, he didn't blame the elements. He knew that it was his choice to go out there, and he put himself in that position. That was always a possibility. It just never happened before. So Aaron owned the fact that it was he himself that got him there. He also owned the fact that he had to deal with his own situation, and as painful as it was, he had to remove his own arm to live. But for Aaron, what he saw was, yes, he lost an arm. Yes, he had a horrible experience, but you know what? He was alive. He still lived. He had a full life ahead of him. He was still a young man. What also happened, because Aaron had this right perspective, was he went on to write a book about his experience, which later became a movie. Not only that, he appeared on The Today Show, on Oprah, on numerous other shows. He gained fame immediately. He kept on um, going hiking. Uh, in fact, he was even named in GQ Magazine's Man of the Year. For Aaron, because he had a good attitude, he owned his own mistake, and he didn't blame anybody, but he picked up and went on because this was not a period in his life. This was a comma. Aaron's life changed and actually became better as a result of this. Now, he still didn't have that one arm, but he had his prosthetic, and he said to himself that he was not limited. Life went on. So as we think about this with the Easter story, and we start to think about life application, what events are there in your life that for years you've been blaming other people? Maybe you've blamed God for them. Maybe you've blamed yourself. Well, as we just took communion, all those individuals should be forgiven now, right? And this is not a period in your life. There's no reason for you and I to be done or to be hindered or stalled. This is a new opportunity for us to pick up and learn how to live life anew. We are a new creation in Jesus Christ. And so ask yourself as we think about this, what burdens have you been carrying around for years? What blame and lack of responsibility have you been blaming others for? Well, today is the day in life application to take responsibility of your own choices in your own life. You see, that's what this message is about. Post-Easter, what do we do post-Easter? Is life done? Is Jesus dead? Is it all over? No, it's a new beginning. It's a new day, a new dawning, and we are not defeated. In fact, we are completely victorious. So what things do you have to have to have victory in your life today? What things do you need to forgive? What things do you need to take responsibility for and realize that nobody got you in that situation or in the situation you're in life, in life right now? You were the one that put yourself there, and you need to figure out how to make life good. In fact, like Jesus, like Aaron, you need to find out how to make life better. So let's think about Easter. What happened? Well, with all this in mind, we looked at the post-crucifixion story. The capture of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is over. The brutal treatment of Jesus at the hands of the Roman soldiers is over. The trial that found Jesus guilty is over. The torturing and twisting of his body is over. The cruel fasting of his body to an old rugged cross is over. The bleeding wounds in his head, his hands, his feet, and his pierced side is over. 
The retrieval of his body from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus is over. The burial of his body in a freshly dug grave is over. The search for his body by the women who visited the tomb is over. Well, for many it seemed everything was over. Or was it? Was it a period point in history? Or was it just a brief comma that you pick up and go on? All that Jesus had gone through in his earthly body was over. But now he had a resurrected body. Now things had gotten better. His mission to redeem man had been completed. And a reunion between God and man, that, re that renewal, that new creation, that new growth, that new opportunity for life and the hope of heaven and maturing in Jesus and being Christ-like had just begun. Easter had been instituted and the very foundation of the New Testament church had been secured. Jesus was not dead. This was not a period. Jesus was alive. This was a comma in history. And after the comma, it became better. In the writings of, the, uh, of John, he provides us probably one of the most complete and comprehensive pictures of the New Testament sequence of events. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all report about the post-resurrection situation and the events of the Savior. But John most specifically gives us some details about how Jesus continued his earthly ministry after the crucifixion. Did you hear that? He continued. He went on. In fact, he multiplied in a greater amount and the salvation, the gospel message traveled throughout the world. Let's go back to what John tells us a little bit. He tells us that the disciples were hiding out in, an, in a room behind closed windows and bolted doors. Why? Because they were in fear. These disciples, although still seeking to follow God, also although still wanting to follow the Savior, were in fear. Fear of the Jews that they would harm them more now than anything else could. You see, this is a side note, but it's interesting that when we allow doubt and fear to control our lives, it locks us away from the world. It casts us into an internal prison, whether it's in our mind or in our own home, to where we don't go out anymore. We don't socialize. We don't intermingle. We don't reach out to others. We just lock ourselves in. It's interesting that 2 Peter 2.19 tells us this, For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Here's the thing about fear. If you allow fear to overcome you, to lock you inside your prison, whether it's mental or physical, your home or, or your own mind, it will overcome you and it will enslave you and put you back in the shackles of bondage. This is why Jesus resurrected from the grave, to break those bonds of sin once and for all and to not let us go back to them. So let me ask you this morning as we're listening. What's enslaving you right now? Are you living in fear with the current circumstances and situations that are going on? Are you living in fear for other reasons? Well, if you don't lay this fear at the foot of the cross and bury it along with all those sins that Christ has forgiven, it will enslave you. Today is the day to not be enslaved again by fear, but to overcome it. Because as the Bible says, in Jesus Christ, we are overcomers. So back to John, back to our story. John tells us that this meeting of the disciples was a little bit different than previous encounters. You see, in the previous encounter that Jesus met the disciples and told them, Peace unto you, Thomas was not with them. Thomas was absent. And so now, eight days later, is they're meeting once again, and Thomas is now with them. Thomas is the skeptic. 
And Thomas is like, you can't tell me that Jesus is alive. And they've been proclaiming it for eight days now. Jesus had been appearing to other people, but Thomas was stuck in his own opinion and would not get out of it. So there's two things about Thomas we want to deal with today to make sure that we learn from his lesson and to make sure that we do not make these same mistakes. First of all, Thomas had failed to be in fellowship. You see, if he had been in fellowship eight days earlier with the disciples, with, quote, the church where he should have been, he would have seen Jesus personally. He would have heard Jesus proclaim the message of peace to them. He would have been there when Jesus breathed on them with the Holy Spirit. He would have been part of that. But Thomas was not in fellowship. The first thing we learn from Thomas is being out of fellowship is a bad thing. We read in John chapter 20, verse 24, but Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, later on in the New Testament, if you look up Hebrews 10, 25, it commands Christians to be in regular fellowship, but not to forsake fellowship, but to be in fellowship. That means having church by ourselves doesn't count. Now, things are a little bit different right now, but as soon as we snap back out of this, my encouragement to you is be involved in a regular church and be there Sunday after Sunday. Don't allow excuses to overcome you because again, like fear, excuses will enslave you. They'll limit you from doing everything. But we see the story of Thomas that he was not in fellowship. And because of that, Thomas missed out. He lost because of his own things. And what did he do? What was his attitude? Well, a lot of times when people are not in church and they feel guilty about that, especially as Christians, they get kind of bitter. And their their mindset is like, well, what can God do for me? What has he done for me lately? How come my life is this way? Why is God punishing me? And you see, that's the wrong mentality. God is not punishing anybody. In fact, Jesus came to set the captives, those who were enslaved, free. He came to bring us freedom. The question should be, what can I do for God? And that's why we show up to fellowship on Sundays. That's why we are in an active, regular church service. That's why we make ourselves get up and go out and go to church at least once a week on a regular basis. Because the Bible commands us to be in fellowship. And there's many reasons for that. One, to get us out of our own head. Two, to teach us to grow together in unity and love. Three, to bless other people and to be blessed by them. Four, just to flat out obey God and to come to maturity in him. But Thomas stops being with his church family because he's frustrated with the events of the crucifixion. I mean, in his mind, Jesus failed him. Jesus blew it. He wasn't who he said he was. So Thomas begins to make his own opinion. The interesting thing here is, as Thomas comes up to the group now and they're telling him that Jesus is alive, and Thomas is like, no, he's not, until I put my hands in his side and see the wounds for myself, I will not believe. What Thomas does is, in essence, he's blaming God for all that this has happened. He's blaming Jesus as the Son of God and God the Father for not coming through for Thomas. What Thomas is missing is God has come through for him. He just did it in a way that was different than the way that Thomas expected. You see, when bad things happen, the Bible doesn't hinder that from happening. In fact, in fact, God tells us through his word that trials and tribulations will come. But in those situations, we are to glorify God and to rejoice. We're not to blame him or to run away from him or to hide. We are to give God the glory. 
and to find out what God wants us to do in that time. You see, the reality here, part of Thomas's skepticism and frustration was Thomas was in sin. He is not in fellowship, and therefore he was in sin. How often is it that when we are in sin, and we are in those circumstances that our sin got us into, whether it was years and years and years, or just a single day, how often do we blame God? Take, for example, the issue of cancer. People smoke all their lives. Yet when they get cancer and bad things happen, they blame God. Really? That's kind of hilarious, isn't it? You see, if we're going to take up the tobacco one way or another and inhale it or dip it or do whatever with it for years and years and years and years, full well knowing that it's a carcinogen, how dare we blame God at the end? How dare we get mad at God if we contact cancer? You see, that's something that was derived of our own life. And God allowed us to do that because he gives us that freedom. We should not blame God in those moments for the circumstances that we have created. Just like Aaron Ralston. He knew that he put himself in that position. It wasn't God's fault. So he went on with life. He accepted what he had to do. And yes, it was painful and it hurt. And he had to cut part of his arm off. But he still had life. Today, Christian, do what you have to do. But choose life. Second thing about Thomas that we share is his skepticism. You know, human nature is an odd thing. That when things don't go our way and we're not following the Lord... We're living in some form of sin or absence or lack of fellowship. We tend to dig our heels in and place our opinion over God's opinion, over what the Word says. And that's where Thomas got it wrong. Jesus had told them all along exactly what was going to happen. But Thomas was hurt because God didn't come through in the way that Thomas wanted him to come through. So Thomas just basically gave up on him, in essence, much like Judas. We read this in John chapter 20, verses 25. So the other disciples were saying to Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands in the imprint of the nails, and put my finger in the place of his nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. <laughs> Can you hear Thomas's attitude in this? Well, I'll show you. And how dare you tell me the way things are? I'll make up my own mind. Don't tell me the way it is. And no matter what you say, I will make my own decision, and I will not believe. Well, you know what? Sin and pride does that to people, and the Bible tells us that pride comes before a fall, and Thomas is about to have a big fall. So now we have our scene set out of the Gospel of John. We have two different players in our story. We have the disciples who are in fear, but are also at least in fellowship, and they're more than willing to believe in the Lord and his rising once again. That's one group. Then we have Thomas, who tries to make truth out of his own opinion instead of the truth of the gospel. He uh, is not open to believing. He's already said, unless you meet this tremendous demand, I will not believe. He's just flat out calling them out and saying, don't tell me what to do or how to live my life. And so, as we see Thomas trying to make truth out of his own opinion, we see him going again further and further into sin. If you notice in the story, Jesus treats both of these groups in two different ways. Why? Well, very simply, it's the rule of sowing and reaping. It's the rule of getting in life of the seeds that you've planted. You see, when things go bad in life, it's again not always that God has done bad things to us. 
a lot of those situations in life are things that we have done ourselves. Jumping from job to job to job to job and blaming the employers, never really sticking one out and working through it. Uh, Being in relationships and buckling down because the other person is always wrong and never being a servant to them or trying to understand their point of view. You see, these are situations we put ourselves in that we suffer the consequence. Galatians 6 verses 6 to 9 tell us plainly, do not be deceived. In other words, don't think you can fool yourself and definitely don't think you can fool God. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. In other words, God will bring the truth out in the end. You will not pull the wool over his eyes. You will not stand defiant before God. And God will not be so peaceful on you because you've disobeyed him all your life. God is not mocked. He is not made a fool of. And he is not there for you to control or to tell him what to do. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows... This he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap flesh and corruption. But the one who sows of the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. Catch all that? God is not a fool and he will not be made a fool. And he is not in a position where we will tell him how it is or what to do. God is the one that is large and in charge and will bring the truth out of our own lives. So how does God treat the disciples? The first group. Well, let's find out. John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. Verse 19. So then, when it was evening on the first, on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut and the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Notice that? Jesus came to them. Why? Because they're in fellowship. They're in church. They're where they're supposed to be, according to the word of God. And so Jesus comes to them. And he says, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples did something crazy. They rejoiced. Can you imagine that? Jesus is dead, supposedly crucified. But now they rejoice. And when they, they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And they began to say, and he, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. And the, and the Father has sent me. I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, their sins have been retained. Wow, that's pretty cool. Jesus meets them because they're in fellowship. They're where they're supposed to be. For one thing, he gives them the greeting of peace. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. In other words, see the good in life. Let let your attitude be that of a cup that's half full, not half empty. So he tells them peace twice to reiterate the fact that this is a good time. All things are as they should be. Then he goes out and he shows them the wounds, now the healed wounds. They rejoice, which is what Christians should do. We are called to rejoice all the time. You know, we're called to rejoice again and again. We're called to rejoice when we face struggles in life. We're called to do all things and all joy, to be joyful always. In fact, the disciples had the joy, 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 joy down in their heart, just as the Sunday school song says. And then Jesus gives them the message to send them out, and he gives them the Holy Spirit. He gifts them. And although these men are living in fear, not completely in faith, they are in fellowship. Their hearts are still open to do the will of God and to seek God. And Jesus takes them, and he turns their fear into joy. He turns their ashes into gladness. He turns their period in life to a comma in life. He turns their bad into good, their doubt to restoration. You see, this is the way we are to live as sons and daughters of the Most High God. 
we are allowed to allow him to change us, to motivate us, to give us a new renewal of our mind and a new life in Christ, one that is better than before. We are not to live in the past. We are not to live in trying to make our opinion become truth. We are not to blame others or blame God, but we are to take responsibility to be where God has called us to be and to be joyful always and in all circumstances. And now let's look at Thomas. Well, it's eight days after the initial meeting when the disciples saw Jesus. So they've been telling others about Jesus and all that's going on, and there they are again. They're meeting once again, and this time Thomas is with them. But he gives them demands on what he expects them to provide or God to provide to meet his expectations. Wow. Can you catch what he's doing here? He's giving them his edict, his demands on what they and God need to do to meet his expectations. Wow. I'll tell you what, that's pretty bold. But a lot of Christians do that. They show up to church. There are Debbie Downers, our negative Nancys. There are naysayers. And they'll show up and it's like, well, I would believe, but, 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 but. And they state conditions on the church. And they make excuses. You see... The church will always have them, just like this early first church of the disciples. Sorry about that. I exceeded my limit on my phone. Maybe I should preach shorter. So, Jesus treats Thomas in a different way. And here's how we see him treating Thomas. It says in John verse, chapter 20, verses 26 to 29. Now, after eight days, the disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. And Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be to you. He greets the disciples once again. But then, verse 27, the mood changes. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving. Do you catch that command? Do not be unbelieving, comma, but believing. Thomas answered and said to Jesus, My Lord and my God, and then Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me and you have believed, blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. Jesus again greets the disciples with the peace be to you meeting, because again, they're in fellowship. They've probably dragged Thomas into them with them. But Thomas, he confronts. Now, Thomas had been quite defiant before this. Remember him saying, Unless this happens, I will not believe, and you need to show this. Again, he's making his demands on how the disciples and God should act. So Jesus confronts that. Remember we read earlier, God is not mocked. A man will reap what he sows. And as Thomas sows these thoughts of pride and making his opinion truth, Jesus confronts that because only the truth will set you free. So Jesus confronts Thomas and he even faces Thomas's outrageous demands. But then he does something different. He chastises Thomas. And finally, he makes Thomas forever a reminder of what a lackluster, fickle Christian looks like for all generations. You see, this just didn't stay in the room. Jesus gives us examples through history of how to be like and how to not be like. Thomas will forever serve as doubting Thomas, as we know him, as the man who didn't believe Jesus. And hopefully we learn from Thomas that we don't make the same mistake. I heard someone give an illustration once about a wooden bucket that they found in an old farm. Two buddies were lock, walking along this old farm and kind of camping out. And the one looks over and he sees this old bucket laying up against the wall. Hadn't been used for years. 
So he picks up this old wooden bucket and he looks at it and he can see daylight through the slats. He looks at it, it's a little rusted, it's totally dried out, it's holes in it, there's daylight coming through those slats of, of, of the pail. And he looks at his buddy and says, well, this is a piece of junk, let's throw it in the fire and burn it up. His buddy wisely looks over and says, oh no, no, let's not do that, that bucket's still good. To which the first friend laughs at him. So the second buddy takes the bucket, he goes over to the well that's still on the old farm, he ties it onto the rope, and he lowers it down into the well. Now the guys camp out that night, they get up the next day, the second guy goes back to the well, he turns the chain, pulls the rope up, pulls out the bucket, which is holding fresh, crystal clear water and not leaking a single thing. You see, when the bucket was put back in its rightful place where it was supposed to be, the water rehydrated it. And it filled up, as it expanded the wood, it filled up those seals, and there were no longer any cracks in the wood. That bucket had been revitalized by the water. Now, we talk about in Christ, once again, that in baptism, we are revitalized with the baptism water that God gives us. We are like that old pail. We can be like Thomas, or we can be like the disciples. We can be like Aaron, we can be like Jesus. It's all in our perspective. So as we close up this morning, I encourage you to do a couple things. One, make sure that you are living in complete forgiveness. Don't be blaming God for anything. Don't bring up the past. Don't be blaming other people. And definitely don't be blaming yourself. Second, do take responsibility. Blaming is different than taking responsibility. So take responsibility for your own life. Deal with those consequences. And if you have to cut things out of your life because they are keeping you stuck and will draw you to death, then cut those things out. You may go without them, but you'll have life. Third, get back in fellowship. We're living in odd times. Our challenge right now is COVID-19, earthquakes as of recently, uh, being stuck inside home, but that shouldn't stop us from being in fellowship. We can meet like we are on this video web. We can call one another. We can intercede for one another in prayer. We can look forward to the day that we can meet together once again in a building, but the building is just a building. The church is bound in, by the Spirit of God. So make sure that you're in fellowship. If you are inside, be reaching out to other Christians. Don't wait for them to call you. That's about you again. Reach out to them and find out how they're doing. Find out what they need. Find out what you can pray for them. Reach out. And then, finally, rejoice. Be in joy always. Our circumstances don't define us. And God is not punishing us. And God is not surprised. In fact, everything that's going on right now is part of God's ultimate plan. It's part of his will. Things through history have happened, but God goes on. This is not a period in life. This is a comma. So gather together in fellowship. Be at peace. Because if God can create the universes and the stars, I think he can handle a little virus or a little shut-in time at home. Rejoice always. Do everything in an attitude of joy. Don't be a negative Nancy or a Debbie Downer. Don't be a naysayer. Run from doubt and live in faith. And make our lives about Jesus. Make him, once again, the number one thing. Post-Easter, don't make our opinions truth, but only go back to the truth of God. And again, let's go out and live life. Because Jesus gave us new life. He proved that death cannot keep us down or him down. And we've given that, been given that promise in God. So as we close this morning, may God bless you. May you go forth in the peace of the Lord. May you 
go back in restoration with the Lord, and may you live in obedience to glorify God. In Jesus' name, amen.